You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. All right, guys. So I know it's I know it's in your mind right now, which is that is weird. And what in the world does that mean? And I'm kind of freaking out right now, and I'm confused all at once, and those are all very fair things to be feeling and thinking right now. My goal today, and and we're entering into Daniel chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, which are all prophetic passages. They're all like this. They feel like this. There's a bunch of symbols, images, numbers. It's all very confusing and cryptic and mysterious. My goal today And from here on out, as we walk into these prophetic passages in Daniel's, is to simply do this. I want to teach you how to read your Bible. See, we are, like I said, beginning this prophetic portion of Daniel. It's full of images, symbols, numbers, and it's cryptic. It's a riddle, if you will. It's like hard to figure out. But I want to show you that it's very possible to crack the riddle. It's very possible to solve the problem. It's very possible to comprehend the message that that's, that's contained in these words and be encouraged along the way. So my goal is to simply teach us how to read the Bible, especially these kinds of difficult passages. So with that said, a few instructions and a few of my presumptions that I go into these passages with, I want to just give you on the forefront so we can kind of be on the same page as we walk through this together. So first uh, instruction, every sermon manuscript that is used on Sunday mornings is online. It's uploaded before church begins. It's in the, it's on our website. Uh, there's a link there. I encourage you, especially for these next several Sundays, we're going through these very difficult passages, these complex passages. Go ahead and download that and read it along with us as we're going through on Sunday morning. Like I'm, it's word for word. It's all there. It might help you. Or look at it after. Look at it before small group. Look at it during small group. It's there for you. It's a resource for you. So use the sermon manuscripts. They are to your benefit. You might need it. Second, there's a lot of controversy surrounding prophetic literature and apocalyptic literature and what it means. And we're not all going to agree on what this means. Not everybody does throughout church history, and that's okay. There's a long history of controversy and various interpretations. I'm going to try my best to make my case for my position and let the chips fall where they may. So uh, then let me go ahead and tell you how I'm going to handle these prophetic passages. So we come to these symbols, we come to all this imagery and these numbers, and here's what I'm going to tell you. We are not left on our own to figure out what these mean. We're not left on our own to try to like pick different parts of history or current events out and try to make it match with what's contained in these, in, in these words. What we do, we're not left on our own, The Bible is self-illuminating. The Bible is its own best commentary. And believe it or not, these symbols and pictures and this imagery and these numbers are used elsewhere in the Bible. And so what we do is we're going to go to all these various parts that these things show up elsewhere and use it to kind of cross-reference and fill in the gaps and make sense of what seems very murky and cryptic and mysterious. And I promise you, when you do that, it's not that hard. It's not that mysterious. I mean, it's a little bit hard, okay? But it's not impossible, okay? So we're not on our own to interpret. The Bible provides us with the material that we need to get it right. 
So with that said, if we let the Bible's progressive story, if we let the Bible's full teaching, the full entire canon inform how we're going to interpret, I think then, this is my presumption as we go into this, I think that it is best and faithful and correct to interpret these passages not literally, but symbolically. These are metaphors. They are not literal. So for example, uh, I don't think that literally these nations are beasts. Okay, like that's what's described. We see a bear and a leopard and others throughout, throughout this passage. I don't think these nations are literally beasts. I don't think God literally has white hair. You know, John chapter four tells us that God is spirit. Okay, so he's not corporeal even. So this is imagery that's depicting certain true realities, but in and of themselves, these symbols, images, and numbers are not literal. They suggest things, they infer things, they refer to things, but in and of themselves are not to be taken literally. They teach us literal truths, but in the nature of themselves are not literal. They are symbolic. So that's my presumption going into this. You'll see as we walk through this. Uh, Another thing, if you can't tell yet, uh, these sermons are going to seem rather technical, they're going to seem rather intellectual. They're going to be very, very heavy on teaching, and that's okay. Look, your heart cannot love what your mind does not know. We are not called to worship God with just our emotions and just our feelings, but with our minds as well. So we want to intellectually pursue God, intellectually strive after God, and therefore work hard and use our aptitude to wrap our minds around these ideas and follow Jesus faithfully, even through difficult texts like this, for God's glory and for our good. So there's some gold in here we're going to see. We're going to dig in and find some gold and follow God, serve God, worship God, not just with our heart, but also with our head. We should not be afraid of hard passages. We should not be intimidated preaching through and reading through hard passages. This is for our benefit and for God's glory. So with all that said, we're coming to Daniel chapter seven now, and we're going to spend two weeks going through it. I'm not going to touch every single thing this week. I'm going to touch some things this week and some things next week. This week, the emphasis, my main idea, if you will, is what is the future of God's enemies? What is the future of those who oppose God? That's what I'm going to try to clarify and show you today. Next week is the future of God's people. So this week, future of God's enemies. Next week, future of God's people. And this week, I don't have three points or, or you know, any creative points like I usually do. All I want to do this week is, is show you what this means. I really just want to walk through this and explain what the text I think means, and then at the end conclude with some, some points of application why this matters. So if you want any points, it's this. What does this mean? That's the majority of our time. And conclude by, by, by asking, why does this matter? How should this actually affect our lives? How does, this, how does the rubber meet the road here? So we're going to talk about what it means first, then why it matters. Sound good? Everyone on the same page? We got it? Good? Hope you drink some coffee. Let's pray. God, we come to you and we ask that you would help us to understand your word. Please, Lord, by your spirit, open up our, our, our minds, illuminate our minds so that we might uh, uh, better follow you and understand your word. Guide us in truth, Lord. Help us be faithful and living and to live with hope. And Lord, help me to teach us with clarity. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So what does this mean? Let's dig into it. Verses one through three. Let let me read. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and the four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. So this is 50 years after Daniel has arrived in Babylon. This is around 553 BC. 
And uh, he has a vision, which means this, that God is transmitting to Daniel, who is a prophet, special revelation, uh, messages, truth that, that are going to tell us about God's plans and purposes throughout the world and throughout history. And so Daniel's a prophet receiving this prophecy, and he writes it down for our encouragement and our instruction. And now you might wonder to yourself just right from the beginning, why does God choose to communicate to us in this way? This is confusing and this is cryptic. Why would God choose to communicate to his prophets and his people through such strange means? One commentator says this. I think it's really helpful. It might not satisfy that question completely, but I think it does satisfy it sufficiently. Here's what one commentator says about this kind of literature. He says, imagery has the power to hook us deep inside. Imagery can quickly and effectively convey that which we struggle to put into words. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being. Imagery goes beyond the intellect, through the emotions, into the imagination, informing the intellect and igniting the emotions. And so what are we supposed to feel? What is this imagery supposed to just press upon us and what are we supposed to get a sense of? the seriousness of either not following Jesus and not allying with God and the seriousness of following Jesus and allying with God. We're supposed to feel sort of the danger and how ominous this is and the seriousness of it. That's what this imagery ultimately is supposed to capture and put into your heart this week. That this is a very serious thing, whether or not you are on team Jesus or on team dragon, team lion and lamb or team serpent. It's a very serious thing. And so that's what's pressed upon us. Let's go ahead and, and break down a few of these details. It says, Daniel observes four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea where these beasts come out of. Uh, in chapter 7, uh, this chapter, and later on in verse 17, it says this, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So these beasts refer to kings and kingdoms. Kings and kingdoms in this mindset, the ancient mindset, are inseparable. You can't talk about a king without his kingdom. So we're talking about four beasts, kings, and kingdoms. But also it says there's this great sea, okay? And again, in the ancient mindset, in the Hebrew mindset, water, the sea, what it resembles, what it is a metaphor for is death and evil, and chaos. And so these beasts, these kings and kingdoms are agents of death and evil and distortion and chaos. Revelation 12, we're going to go to Revelation a lot today to cross-reference and fill in some blanks. Revelation 12, 17 says this. We read it uh, for our congregational reading today. The dragon became furious with the woman, that's the church, went off to make war on her and the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And look what it says about our enemy about Satan. It says he stood on the sand of the sea. So if we're putting these images together, which are compatible and are meant to be read together, what we see is these kings and kingdoms are allied with, working together with our great enemy, the dragon, Satan, to bring about destruction, to bring about evil, to bring about death, to bring about chaos. Another detail you see, and here's these four winds. This, these four winds are stirring up this great sea. And then in Revelation 7, 1, it also says this, after I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no one might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. I'm not going to interpret what that means, but I'm just going to point to the fact that mention of four winds and four corners is again mentioned there in Revelation chapter 7. And then 
We're going to do this a lot, moving quickly, rapidly, you know. Daniel chapter 8, the next chapter, next week, uh, in a few weeks from now, it talks about a goat. It says this, then the goat became exceedingly great. Uh, that goat is, is uh, Media Persia. And when he was strong, you'll see that in a second here. When he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Sorry, this is Greece, not Media Persia. But anyway, we'll get to that. I just had a brain lapse there. But four wins. Okay, this mentioned four, 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 four. What's going on here? What, what are we supposed to get from that imagery? And it's this. It's four winds and four corners. It's a reference to something happening at a cosmic level, at a grand, outside of space and time kind of level. So get this. These, these kingdoms, they're all geographically located around the Mediterranean throughout history. We're going to see that. But they're a part of something bigger than themselves. That's what this means. They're being stirred up out of the sea to partner with the enemy in his purposes and in his plans, but they are taking part of and integrated into something that isn't just in their time and place and geography, but they're taking part of something that is an age-old, historically long story. Something happening at a cosmic level. So that's kind of setting the pace for today. That's saying the tone for today. What we're talking about is the future of God's enemies. And we're not talking literally just about a few people here in Daniel's time and shortly after. We're talking about something that is much bigger than even that. Okay? So with that said, let's look at verse 4. Let's look at the first kingdom. It says this, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Again, what I said before, that we allow the Bible to be its own commentary. We allow the Bible itself, what we see in it, and what's related to these words and these passages, to fill in the blanks and to illuminate. And if you're thinking critically, this should recall something in the book of Daniel. What we have here is what? A, uh, 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 an animal that was humbled, and then exalted and given its sanity back, became a man again. What does that remind you of? That's Nebuchadnezzar. And a lion, this is a lion here, this beast is a lion, which is a typical way that Babylon was described in ancient texts. So we know that this is referring to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar, when he was made like a beast of the field before he returned to a sane place, it says this, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. So God doesn't want it to be confusing. He's depositing little clues that tell us who these, who these beasts are, and it's very clear that this is a reference to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. So that's the first kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. But we know that Babylon falls to who? Media Persia. And in fact, it's going to happen very soon here after this vision takes place. And that's who is next. Verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. So one detail here to highlight is it was raised up on one side. What does that mean? What is that referring to? What it refers to is that the media Persian empire, those two uh, kingdoms that were integrated with one another, the Persian empire was the stronger of the two. So there's this lopsided kingdom where the media Persian empire favors the Persian kingdom within it. 
And these three ribs likely refer to three military campaigns that made uh, this kingdom like an established legitimate empire and the appetite that it has arised of our much flesh. You know, it says that there in verse five, it refers to media Persians empires, ferocious appetite to conquer other territories. And just to go ahead and sell you on this and prove to you that this is media Persia and that this lopsided imagery refers to the Persian empire within this dual dynasty in chapter eight, again, which is a vision about Media Persia and Greece specifically. We'll see that in a few weeks. It says this in, in chapter 8, verse 3. Look what it says about the ram, which resembles Media Persia. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. Both were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. So we see here that there's repetition. Again, it's not meant to be confusing. God deposits this repetition, these clues, so we make sense of these things, that this is, in fact, certainly the Median Persian Empire, and yet there's still questions or hesitation that that's the case. In chapter 8, we get the interpretation of the dream, and here's what it says in verse 20. As for the ram that you saw, Daniel, with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So we know it's Babylon first, who is this lion who is humbled and raised back up. And then we know that this, this, uh, this bear is Media Persia. So first Babylon, Media Persia, next Greece, Greece. And Daniel, remember, he's having this vision in 553 BC under the first year of King Belshazzar. So truly what Daniel is receiving from God is predictive of the future. It's prophesying was to come to pass in the future. Greece is hundreds of years off still, but he's receiving a vision of what's going to happen. Verse six, it says this, after I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. What does the imagery convey? You have a leopard with not just two wings, like not just one pair of wings, but four wings altogether, two pairs of wings. What's this imagery conveying? Speed. A leopard is very fast and it has double the amount of wings. So this is a shorthand reference to Greece, the speed in which Greece conquered underneath specifically Alexander the Great. He uh, accumulated more territory than anybody else in such a short period of time. So that's who this beast is referring to. And then it says uh, the, the detail there, if you noticed, that there are four heads. There's four heads on this leopard, on this beast. That is reference to the fact, the historical fact, that after Alexander the Great died, he reigned when he was 20 to 32. He died of like a pneumonia, took him out. And after that, his empire was split up between four generals. And that's, that's what this, this is referring to. These four generals who take over four different territories and become sort of this sister kingdom for a time. And chapter 8 I'll point you there. Again, confirms this interpretation. It says in chapter 8, verse 8, then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, at his prime, the great horn was broken. Sounds like Alexander the Great. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven, the four generals who took over the different territories. So we move from Babylon to Media Persia to Greece. We went rapidly through those. Because more detail and attention is given to the fourth kingdom, this fourth beast, more than any of the three that precede it. So we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about this fourth beast. So that's what we've seen so far. Babylon, Media Persia, Greece. And now we move on to the fourth and final beast. Verse 7, look at it. 
says this, after I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had iron teeth. It devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. So this is Rome. This is a reference to Rome. Rome is characterized as this aggressive and ruthless and conquering and expanding empire. And again, the Bible is its own commentary. The Bible is mutually illuminating. We should go to other passages to make sense of what seems confusing or where there's question marks. And so if you go to chapter 2, remember back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision, remember that, of a statue that's broken up into four different sections. Each one of those sections correspond to each one of these beasts. So I'm telling you, God does not want things to be confusing. He gives us tons of clues and details to help us make sense of the message. So if you go to chapter 2, what do we see in chapter 2, verse 40? It says, And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, which is a connection to our passage in chapter 7, where Rome is said to have iron in it, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. Another connection, another repetition. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these things. So the similar imagery of iron and the similar characteristic of ruthless crushing is shared between these two kingdoms, these two visions. So that means they're telling us and speaking of the same kingdom, Rome. But, but we are to understand that this fourth kingdom, this final kingdom, this beast, Rome, is more than Rome. It's bigger than Rome. It's something more than Rome. This is Rome and beyond. Rome is the immediate fulfillment, the immediate uh, um, realization of this beast. But the fullest expression is that this kingdom that opposes God, that this is the kingdom that opposes God and his people throughout all time, before and after Rome. This is the realization of that great effort. All the kingdoms of the world and all of history are figuratively collapsed into this one beast, this one kingdom. So regardless of geography, regardless of political structure, any kingdom that stands against God and his truth and his righteousness is allied with the dragon, with our great enemy, Satan, and actually comprise one entity all throughout time, the beast. So Rome is the immediate fulfillment, but the fullest and final understanding is that this is all kingdoms who ally with Satan to oppose God and to oppose his people. That's what I think this means. That's why I think the fourth beast, that's what I think the fourth beast is. Now let me go ahead and spend some time making my case, telling you why I think this is the way it is. Continue with me through verse seven. Through verse seven, it says this as we keep reading. It said that this beast, it was different from all beasts that were before it. Now, what I want you to notice is that the first three are assigned animals, aren't they? Lion, bear. This one, though, this fourth one, it's just called a beast. It's not assigned any animal at all. It's, it's kept to be generic. It's, it's, it remains generic. Why is that? I think that is the case. I think the reason why God does this is to reinforce in our minds that this beast is really just the integration of all the beasts before. That this beast is a conglomeration of all kingdoms throughout all time. So he's not, it's not labeled as anything specific. It's maintained to be generic so that all things fit into it. And I think this is confirmed. What I just said, I think it's confirmed. If you look just a few verses ahead into verse 12, where Daniel observes that this final beast is killed. We'll get to that next week more. Uh, 
and at the end of the sermon a little bit more. But look what he, he does in verse 12. He makes a comment. He, he adds a little comment in here after the beast is killed. And it says this, verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And what I want you to see there is that their dominion is taken away, meaning they cease to be empires in a you know, historical way. Their authority, their dynasty was taken away, but yet in some way and in some sense, they live on. In some way and in some sense, they keep going. And how is that? It's because they are integrated into something that is bigger than themselves, that is timeless, that is not uh, um, limited to their place in history. They live on even in the final beast. Then, okay, if you return to the rest of verse 7, it says what? It adds the detail. It says, this beast has 10 horns, 10 horns. And if you, uh, and just so you know, horns refers to mighty rulers. That's a way to refer to mighty rulers. But some will say that this number 10, these 10 horns, that it must refer to literally 10 kings throughout history, 10 rulers that we will see and observe throughout history. Uh, But I don't think that's what it means. Uh, In the Hebrew world, again, numbers were assigned meaning. And this is called numerology. And I think 10 is not literal then. I think 10 is symbolic and it refers or suggests this idea of wholeness, fullness, totality. So the number 10 is not referring to literally 10 kings and kingdoms throughout all time, but it's referring to the total number of kings and kingdoms that are integrated into this beast throughout all time. And if you don't believe me, or if you have questions, or if you're like, if that's a new idea to you, Revelation 13, I think, proves this point because it uses the same sort of imagery, a lot of this imagery, and collapses it all into the final beast. Look at uh, verse 13, or chapter 13, verses 1 and 2 in Revelation. It says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, sound familiar? With ten horns and seven heads, number ten and seven, both are, are ideas of fullness and totality. With ten diadems, so these are rulers. Ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Hmm, sound familiar? Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth is like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So seriously, what, what John is doing here is he's, he's completing the vision, the revelation that was started in Daniel. Daniel has revelation but he's told at the end to close up the scroll and to cease. John picks up that scroll and keeps writing. So Revelation, the book of Revelation is like the sequel to the book of Daniel. So John's uh, furthering what we've seen already take place in the book of Daniel. What John does here, what he's shown in his vision, vision is literally that features, components of these first three kingdoms, leopard, bear, lion, are collapsed into this final kingdom that rises out of the sea at the beckoning, at the empowerment of the great dragon. So I think what John is doing here is he's confirming that the fourth kingdom, this beast in Daniel, is incorporated with the kingdoms before it and after it. And I'll keep going. I'll keep proving my point here, okay? So that this fourth kingdom refers to the entire kingdom of the devil and those who oppose God, I think, is also confirmed in chapter 2, which we've already visited once. In chapter 2, we go back to that vision. And we let it be self-illuminating, mutually illuminating to fill in the blanks. And here's what the rest of the description says about the last part of that statue, about that last and final kingdom. It says this in chapter 2, 41 through 43. And, you, and it says, and as you saw the feet and toes, and remember toes, 10 toes, 
So at 10 toes, okay, I think there's correspondence here. 10 horns, 10 kings. Throughout time, we have 10 toes here, partly of potter's clay, yet partly of iron. Remember, iron represents Rome. It shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Before I tell you what this means, I have to admit something. When I preached this in chapter two, I got it wrong. So I can, you know, Taylor said that last week. He was like, hey, I got that wrong. I got it wrong too. Not perfect. Okay, give me a break. So, um, so I got it wrong. That's all right though. But I think what this means is, is that um, the iron that represents Rome continues into the feet which of course have 10 toes, like I mentioned, which corresponds to these 10 kings and 10 horns, which of course symbolizes the entirety of kingdoms who oppose God throughout all time. And I think the meaning of this brittleness and softness and weakness mixed in with the iron, the clay and the toes, which, makes, which compromises it, is this. These kingdoms throughout time, although they are the fullest expression of Rome, this fourth and final kingdom, they will not last They will come and go. They will rise and fall. And as kingdoms and empires and nations come and go and rise and fall, they will integrate with one another. They will uh, mix with one another. They're still part of the fourth kingdom, but they're not all powerful. They're not everlasting. They're not going to endure forever like God's kingdom will. So I think that's what this means. I think this clarifies just exactly what this vision means and who exactly this fourth kingdom is. So I hope I've sold you by all these cross-references that this uh, fourth beast is Rome, Rome and beyond. It stretches back to the past and stretches into the future, gathers all kingdoms and kings that oppose God and ally with Satan, and that is who this beast is. That's who this beast represents. But this is going to be fun for some of you because some of you love this, what I'm about to do here. Okay, this fourth and final kingdom is given a feature that we haven't talked about yet. And this feature is introduction of who is commonly called the Antichrist. So we're going to talk about the Antichrist here a little bit. Some of you are going to be like, I love that. You're weird. Keep it down. All right. So verse eight says this. It says, I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. I think what that means is, is simply there's three kingdoms before, uh, Media, Persia, Greece, Babylon are integrated into this kingdom. So I think that's what that's referenced to. But it says this, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So let's talk about this little horn or the Antichrist, who this is, what this means, how should we understand this? So when it comes to interpreting prophecy, when it comes to interpreting apocalyptic literature, like I said before, there are some who interpret these things literally. So an example of this, I'm going to make some people mad here, okay? An example of this would be the tribulation, okay? The Bible, Daniel and Revelation, talk about uh, two, three and a half year periods that are back to back, which comprise a total of seven years. And it is common, especially if you've read like Tim LaHaye, Left Behind series, uh, there is an, uh, an interpretation or understanding of that as this literal seven year tribulation that's going to occur right before Jesus returns, That would be a very literal understanding of the two, three and a half periods. Or another example of this would be in Ezekiel. This prophetic passage in Ezekiel talks about how David, King David, is going to be a priest in the temple in the New Jerusalem. 
And so some people believe that one day in the New Jerusalem, David is going to be in the temple as a priest. Okay, another example of, of interpreting things literally would be um, in Revelation, how it talks about the temple is going to be destroyed. Obviously, there's no temple right now. And so therefore, those who take things literally or interpret these things literally think the temple must be rebuilt so that it can be desecrated and torn down. So those are some examples of how things are taken literally. But I and many others, on, on, on the other hand, don't take these things literally. I think these are symbols, metaphors of timeless truths. They reach beyond themselves. They talk about things bigger than themselves. So they are not literal. They are symbolic. So then, therefore, when I come to the Antichrist passages, I see this as symbolic, not literal. So I, therefore, do not believe the main idea is that there will one day be this geopolitical leader who, who gathers together all nations of the world to persecute Christians. I don't think that's what this means. Uh, instead, I think that the Antichrist, this little horn, is a person or persons that will exist in every generation. They will persecute and oppose God's people, and they will deceive through false teaching. So I think the Antichrist is not some end time, right before Jesus turns, singular individual political leader. I think the Antichrist is in every generation, all throughout time, uh, in different persons. It's a, it's a spirit of the age, if you will. So let me make my case, all right? I'm gonna make my case here, okay? Listen up. I'll start in Daniel chapter eight, okay? Daniel chapter eight, again, let me remind you, is a vision of Media, Persia, and Greece. So this, that's before Rome. That's before Rome, right? And here's what it says. Look what it says in Daniel chapter eight, verses eight through 10. It says, then the goat became exceedingly great, which is Greece. Uh, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. We've already established that's Alexander the Great, the four generals. But look what it says as we keep on reading. Out of one of them came a little horn. Okay. Sounds familiar. Uh, which grew exceedingly towards the south, towards the east, towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host of some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. So what I want you to see here is that Daniel is being told that within Greece, there will be an antichrist. Within the kingdom of Greece, there will be a, a little horn who arises, who persecutes and is arrogant and blasphemes. So I think who this person is, just so you know, we're going to get to this in a few weeks. This is literally talking about a man named Antiochus Epiphanes who enters the temple and sacrifices swine on the altar and desecrates it. It's called the abomination of desolation. So I think that's who this is referring to specifically. But the point I want to make is that if the Antichrist was literally at the end of the age, an individual person who were waiting, then how do we make sense of Daniel chapter eight, where this figure is called the little horn? This figure is called the Antichrist. That's one point I want to make, but I also want to draw your attention to Revelation 12. It says this in Revelation 12, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And that's what it says in Daniel eight about this little horn that it's going to cast stars down to the earth. And so, of course, this is a reference, shorthand reference in Revelation 12 to the great rebellion of Satan who uh, rebels against God and who deceives and uh, some of the host of the angels follow him and join his ranks. But what we're supposed to see here is that this antichrist figure is heavily associated with Satan. 
So much so that his rebellion is assigned to this little horn, this Antichrist's rebellion. That Satan's throwing down of the stars is one of his descriptions now. So the Antichrist, who I think appears in every generation, it's Antiochus Epiphanes and it's beyond, uh, is associated with Satan and his rebellion. He's allied with him in opposition to God and to God's people. And um, I'm going to keep making my point here, okay? Elsewhere in Revelation, I think we can see that the Antichrist is not one individual at the end of time, but a persona who will appear throughout time. Revelation 13, we've read this before. I'll read it again here. Read with me. It says this. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So I think just, just to answer satisfying any questions there, this mortal wound, this resurrection kind of imagery we have here of the beast, what I think this is a reference to is how this fourth kingdom throughout all time is going to rise and fall and rise and fall and come back and how the evil agenda and how the destruction and the chaos within it is going to come and go, come and go, come and go. An example I would give you is Nazi Germany loses, comes to an end, yet communism continues. As communism sort of becomes unpopular and, uh, throughout time, yet still totalitarian, totalitarian regimes pop up all throughout uh, the globe still. So that's what I'm saying is there's this false resurrection, this mimic of resurrection that the Antichrist throughout time and the beast copies of the true resurrection who is Jesus. But anyway, that was just a little side note. Let's keep going. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast, listen here, look at this. This is interesting. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Does that sound familiar at all? This mouth that blasphemes, this mouth that speaks great things, this mouth that is arrogant towards God. In Daniel 7, we are told that the little horn speaks great things. And later on in Daniel chapter 7, it says that it shall speak words against the Most High. So I'm telling you, there's this continuity throughout the Bible, continuity between Daniel and Revelation that describes this fourth kingdom and the Antichrist that resides within it as in the same way. Therefore, it can't be this person at the end of time solely, merely. It has to be this persona, the spirit of the age that exists throughout all time. And if we take this position, okay, okay, if we take this position that this is symbolic, it's metaphorical, it's timeless, it's not literal, it's not geopolitical, that I think this makes sense of all the other passages we see about the Antichrist in the New Testament. So I want to go ahead and read some of those, some of those excerpts, and show you how this makes sense, how these things are in harmony. First John says a lot about the Antichrist. Let's look and see. First John 2 says this, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. 
They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. And it continues on later and says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So you see, he's telling these churches, you've heard the Antichrist is coming, but he's already with us. He's already present amongst us. He's been here all along. 1 John 4 says this, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is already in the world. So who is the, we get an identity of who the Antichrist is, even more specific uh, profile of who the Antichrist is. Who is it? It's those who oppose God, who do not believe Jesus is God, who do not believe Jesus is, is the truth, who, who they, he is those who oppose God. The claims of Jesus. And again, 2 John 7, keep reading. Look what else John says. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So let's get this straight. John is telling these churches over 2,000 years ago that we know the end is near, that we know Jesus is going to return because the Antichrist is already among us. The Antichrist is already present and already here. There are those amongst us before, presently, and will always be who oppose God and deny that Jesus is the Christ and is God. So Antichrist is coming, but he's already present and he's already in every generation. Now, for those of you who are like our Bible experts, you're thinking about 2 Thessalonians 2 right now. Because 2 Thessalonians 2, if you know it, it's, it's a passage that is another one of those Antichrist passages. And it, upon a surface reading, a quick glance at it, what it appears and seems to be teaching is that there is this future one day individual Antichrist who is to come. And that's how we know that Jesus is about to return. That's a, that's a quick glance, quick reading of it. I think if you dig into the details a little more in that passage, you'll see that's not what it says exactly. What it seems to teach, actually, is what I've been saying all along, that the Antichrist is coming, but is already among us. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole passage because it's really long, but I'll pull out a few details. So Paul tells the Thessalonians that they have not missed Jesus' coming yet because that day, he says, will be preceded by certain things. Here's what the day of of Jesus' return will will be preceded by. First, it says a great rebellion. So I take that to mean rampant sin and immorality, celebration of sin, unrestrained sin and immorality. He also says, you'll know because the man of lawlessness will be revealed. The man of lawlessness will be revealed. Now here's what's interesting. Do you know who was called in Jewish literature, the man of lawlessness? Antiochus Epiphanes, that man who entered the temple and sacrificed swine in the temple in the intertestamental times. So Obviously, this isn't talking literally about Antiochus Epiphanes because he's not alive in this time. So it must be talking about a person who is, who is uh, an installment in that pattern, who matches that description, who is that kind of persona. And then it says, it's followed by a phrase that says this, the son of destruction or the son of perdition, it says, which is an exact quotation of Jesus and his reference to Judas. So what we're talking about here is unfaithfulness, betrayal, fickleness, falling away. So it seems like Paul is saying this. 
you will know that Jesus is going to return when sin is unrestrained and people are irreverent and arrogant like Antiochus Epiphanes was, and when people are unfaithful like Judas was. That's how you know that Jesus is returning. And then, I think the nail in the coffin is verse 6 in in 2 Thessalonians 2. It says this in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 6. He says, And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. So what he's saying there is, Antichrist is already present. He's just restrained. But over the course of time, Antichrist will be in full bloom. The restraint will be lifted, and therefore sin will be unrestrained. The rebellion will be unrestrained. Arrogance will be unrestrained. uh, Irreverence will be unrestrained. Unfaithfulness will be common and observable. So all this to say, I don't think the Antichrist is this literal end-of-time person. It's this every generation reality that, that partners in the, with Satan within the fourth and final kingdom, this beast, to oppose God and to oppose God's people. So Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, and Rome, and beyond, and the Antichrist, we've met all the characters. We've met all of those who are God's enemies, those who oppose God. We've established who they are. But I want to ask this question quickly. What does their future hold? We really haven't talked about that. So what does the future hold for those who oppose God? Let me point you to three different places in Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, 21 through 22, it says this. As I looked, this horn, was, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So what is the future of God's enemies? Those who oppose him, the future of the fourth beast and its representative, the Antichrist, is going to be characterized by seemingly successful opposition and persecution of Christians. It's going to seem throughout time that the enemy is winning. It's going to seem throughout time that Christians are weaker. It's going to seem throughout time that we are in trouble and in danger. That's one uh, prediction of what the future holds for God's enemies. But look further in Daniel 7.25. It also says this. We've read this before. Read it again. It says, he shall speak words. This is the Antichrist. He shall speak words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High. So again, that's a reference to persecution. But look at this. And shall think to change the times and the law. There's only one person who can change time. There's only one person who's sovereign over time. It's the one true God. There's only one person who has established the law and has given us the truth, and it's God. But here in this fourth kingdom, represented, embodied by the Antichrist, God's enemies are going to try to be God. They're going to try to change the truth and distort the truth and subvert the truth. So that's the future of God's enemies, to persecute the church and to deceive the church. Okay? But that's not all. And that's not the end. And I know I've spent so much time talking about uh, sort of serious, sobering things. And we're ending, I know I'm speaking about this very quickly just because this is a huge, massive sermon, but this is, this is where things get better. This is where things become celebration because that, everything I've said is not the end of the story. The persecution, the deception, it's not all there is because look at verse 7, 11, chapter 7, 11. The animal says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. So the horn is blaspheming. The horn is speaking against the most high. Then look what happens. As I looked, the beast was killed. Just like that. Its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. The horn speaks with arrogance. 
But in the end, God will put an end to his opposition and arrogance along with all of those who have allied with him. Essentially, God's enemies are successful only insofar as God has permitted. He will have the decisive say in the end, and it will be swift, and it will be, it will be final. So in summary, okay, God knows exactly who his enemies are. And he's told us exactly who his enemies are. Every kingdom that opposes him and serves Satan is empowered by Satan. They're all collapsed into the fourth beast represented by the little horn in every generation until Jesus, until Jesus returns. And this fourth beast will make its mission to oppose God and to oppose his people through persecution and by distorting the truth. But in a moment, at the return of Jesus, God's enemies will be defeated in swift judgment. That is the future of God's enemies. Everybody take a breath. Whew, okay, I can take I need to take that breath, all right? Someone, someone bring me some coffee. All right, here's what I want to ask. Why does any of this matter? Right? It's all this cryptic, uh, exaggerated language. It's hard to understand. We kind of dug into it. I think it makes a little more sense now. But why does this matter? Why should you read this in your devotions? Why should you listen to this kind of sermon? Why does this matter at all? Let me give you six reasons very quickly. Okay? First, Satan is real. If there's one thing we should conclude, it's that we have a real enemy of our soul who wants to destroy us, who wants to distract us, who wants to take us out of the game, but it won't be obvious. Listen to me. We don't live in India. In India, there are temples to pagan gods and demons everywhere. They have opened themselves up to the spiritual realm. That is their presumption that these things are real, accessible, celebrated, and that's how Satan gets a foothold. The demonic activity, spiritual activity is way more observable in the East than here. Why is that? Because our presumption is the exact opposite, that spiritual things are silly. We trust in science. We're reasonable creatures. Those things, that's like folklore and mythology. We don't trust those things. We trust ourselves. Additionally, everything that God values, we don't value. God values children. God values uh, sex and marriage. God values diversity. God values truth. And we don't value any of those things. Those presumptions those things that we have opened ourselves up to, that is how the enemy gets a foothold in your life. That is how he takes you out of the game. That is how he causes you to drift and fall away and eventually join ranks with the serpent. It's not going to be obvious, guys. It's not. It's going to be subtle. It's going to be insidious. He's going to take the things that you blindly accept and blindly adopt and use those against you to turn your heart against Jesus. Be watchful. Be resolute. <laughs> and so I have conversations with people, and they're like, I don't have time to read my Bible. I don't, I'm too tired to read my Bible. And they watch eight hours of Netflix a day. And my, my, my exhortation is, you're out of the game. The enemy is winning. He, he has put the pacifier in your mouth, and you're just sedated, and you're just adopting, you're adopting presumptions that are going to turn your heart and your imagination against Jesus. Be watchful. Be resolute. Be careful what you take in. At any given moment, you are being transformed. At any given moment, you are being altered and shaped either, either to the image of Jesus or to the image of the serpent. First, Satan is real. Second, God does not lie. 
This is written in 553 BC, and it's all come to pass. It's all been true. There has been no lapse in judgment. There has been no inconsistency. There has been no, uh, no lie. God does not lie. He is reliable. He is worthy of your trust. And what better place to put your trust than in this God who rules over all time in history, who's not surprised by anything, even uses, listen to this, even uses his enemies' attempts to thwart him for his good purposes. What the enemy meant for harm, God uses for good. God is reliable. He does not lie. He always tells the truth. Bank your life on Jesus. Build your life on him, the sure and steady foundation. Make him the cornerstone of your life. Where else can you go to find this? You won't find it anywhere. There's only one who will never let you down. There's only one who will never lie to you. There's only one who will always have your best interest in mind and use everything for your good and for his glory. Your father, he does not lie. Thirdly, have a meta-narrative. Do you know what I mean when I say meta-narrative? I mean a story that is above all stories. I mean like the one true story. We, each and every one of us, live our lives through story. We navigate the complexities of our life, the disappointments and the good things of our life. We navigate those things through framework of story. We, um, we see characters, we have tension and conflict and resolution and conclusion. That's how we live our life. All of us, therefore, adopt stories. All of us, therefore, adopt narratives to help make sense of our life and our world. And every single story of virtue, every single story of honor, every single story of romance, every single story of justice and happy endings all point to the one great true story, the meta narrative, which we've been studying today. Hope you've seen that like this one passage connects to passages before and after. The Bible is literally one large narrative. There's no inconsistency in it. It's one continuous story. Will you make that your story? You, (laughs) You and I need a durable story. You and I need a story that can handle our questions, that can handle our heartbreak and suffering, that can handle our that can handle mystery. We need a story that can handle these things. There's no story besides the one true story that's going to do that for you. And so here we've been given a story that makes sense of everything. When you look at evil straight in the face and you see just terrible things that occur, how do you make sense of that if you don't believe this? We all need a story to make sense of things. Make this your story. It's the one true story. Fourth, have urgency. Have urgency. If you noticed, if you were listening, when I was talking about the Antichrist and trying to make my case that, uh, from my, my position, I said this. We will know that Jesus is returning when sin is unrestrained, and rampant and celebrated, when arrogance and irreverence is welcomed and uh, celebrated, uh, and uh, when unfaithfulness is very common. That's, that's now. That's now, guys. We're living in it. Jesus can return any moment. I'm serious. We should believe that. We should operate like that. If, you, if that settles down into your heart, that will change your life. Do you know that? You will not be materialistic. 
You will not be anxious about petty little things that don't matter. <laughs> uh, you will not be, you, and you will not be conquered by a cynicism when you see injustice and wicked things happening because you know that it's all going to be undone soon. And you know what else you'll do? You'll invite people. And you'll do it not sheepishly. You won't do it. You won't come on strong and be weird about it, okay? But you'll tell people the gospel. You'll share the gospel because we don't have much time left. And if you love your neighbors and if you love your family and if you love your classmates and if you love your coworkers, you'll tell them because we don't have much time. It's now. Jesus can return at any moment. And so are you ready? Are you ready? Let me go ahead and just make that appeal now. If you're here and you're seeking, you're here and you're curious, but you have not put your faith in Jesus, I'm serious. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. You know that, right? Life is fragile, and we're being told that time is running out. And so I make the appeal to you today, time is short. Have urgency to share the gospel. Have urgency to repent. And that's my other point, fifth point. Repent. And here's the wonderful news. This is this beast that if you're not following Jesus, you're part of this wicked, evil beast. You've allied with the dragon. Here's what is outrageous. Jesus is not so proud that he won't receive his enemies. You can defect from the kingdom of darkness and enter the kingdom of light. And his arms are open to you. Repent. Turn away from these things that you're putting your hope in. Turn away from self-righteousness and receive Jesus. Believe that he is God. Believe that you needed forgiveness. Believe that he had to die for you because it's your only hope. Believe that what you deserve is to be separated from God forever because that is just. It's what you've wanted. It's what you've built your life on, but it no longer has to be. Repent because time is running out, but Jesus, he is humble and kind and compassionate and he will welcome you and you don't need to be perfect. You don't need to have it all together. You just need to come and say, Jesus, I need you and that's all I know. And that's enough. So repent. Lastly, have you wondered ever why, why these dreams and visions are always depicted in beasts, like different animals? It's kind of strange. Could have chosen, I guess, agriculture or food or something. I don't know, but he chose animals. Why would God do that? And here's why. Because I think what God wants to reinforce to us is that when you cease worshiping him, you become a beast. When you cease worshiping him, you become less than human. You become desensitized. Uh, you become hollow. You begin to love the darkness. You begin to love the things you should love. You begin to exchange the good things for bad things. You become superficial. You become deceived and you lose your humanity. The last reason, the last why this matters is be careful what you worship. Be careful what you give your mind and your heart and your affections to because it will have a transformative effect on you. You will either look at Jesus and fix your eyes at Jesus and become more like him, who is the image of God, or you will become more like the serpent, the dragon. You'll become more beastly. God's will for us, his people, is that we be like Jesus that we think like him, 
speak like him, persevere like him, suffer like him, rejoice like him. That only happens if you're careful with what you worship. So how do you know what you worship? Well, you know based on what has an effect on you. What makes you feel sad? What makes you feel anxious? What stresses you out? What makes you really happy? Those are the things that you know you've invested yourself in, that you're worshiping, that you're laying your heart on the altar to and opening up your heart to. Be sure you're opening your heart up to Jesus, first and foremost, and don't put anything else in that place. It will change you. And so this is the future of God's enemies. You know, they will, they will seemingly be successful for a time, but in a moment, at the breath of King Jesus when he returns, it will all be undone. And so citizens, church, have urgency. Be careful what you worship. Repent and believe. Have a meta-narrative. Trust in God and be wary of your enemy. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your word, how it is true, how it helps, how it clarifies, and how it instructs. And so, God, we pray that you would equip us to be faithful to you. We are your servants. We are exiles, just like Daniel was. This is not our home. Our home is in the new heavens and new earth. Our home is in resurrection bodies with you, Jesus, where there will be no more sin and sadness. There will be no more death. Every tear will be wiped away and sadness will be no more. And we will dwell with you in pure bliss forever and ever. We look forward to that day. And so God, grip our hearts, grip our hearts even now and catapult us into faithfulness. Help us to persevere, help us to be watchful and help us to live lives worthy of our calling and be pleasing to you. In your name we pray, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.